So welcome to our July edition of the Cinetopia Show and Podcast. We're back and still doing our podcast remotely. My name's Amanda Rogers, and I run Cinetopia, an organization that focuses on creating events and programs to foster the discussion of film and filmmaking. I'm here with Jim Ross, fellow producer of the Cinetopia Podcast and managing editor of Take One Magazine. Jim, how's it going? You're back to work. I am. Uh, I was on furloughed uh, about a month ago now, so it's a bit death by Zoom, but it's good to have a bit of structure back in my day. So, yeah, no, it's going well. It's going well. Reduced time for film watching, but I'd be lying if I said I was getting through as many as I wanted anyway. So, you know. Yeah, I know. It's been it's been harder for me, I think, in this in this um in in this era now without cinemas, but. Um, but yeah, it's uh, well, we'll talk about the f- lots of films that we've seen in the past month. Um, and Mark, we're back with Mark Nelson, freelance film critic and regular contributor to our show. Mark, you're also back to work as well. Yeah, just one day a week, which is weird because the the rest of the day just feels the rest of the week just feels like furlough again. Um, but I'm having a similar thing with um, similar thing to Jim actually of just not getting through as many films as earlier in the earlier in the lockdown i can i always find that with one individual film i'm just cutting it up into pieces now and watching 20 minutes here 20 minutes there and that's not usually a mode of i like uh consuming films in but it's just it's just been the way of it recently yeah and i as i don't know if you all see i moved so um i don't have a tv anymore so i'm also (laughs) relying on my laptop which a lot of people do regularly um but uh I, i was used to watching at least, at least on a, on a TV, but, um, yeah, plugging through. Um, so anyway, today we'll be reviewing two films together, starting with Clemency, directed by Chinoye Chiku, as well as Traitor, a film directed by Marco Bellocchio. Um, both of these films were shown as part of the Edinburgh International Film Festival online called Ed Film Fest, and we can talk a little bit about that. We'll also be picking our favorite films to watch on the movie platform. And also, I am going to share a clip of an interview I did with Tim Barrow and Robbie Jones, the director and DP of a new film, um, Riptide, uh, that was actually featured on the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival this past uh, few weeks. And so we'll be talking about this, this Scottish film. It's really beautiful and uh, definitely worth your watch. Um, all of this on our July's episode. So for Cinetopia, we have some exciting news. Cinetopia is going to take its Cinetopia doc series online for the first time with a program called Love Your Local. So this will be a series of documentaries and curated online discussions around the theme of community. So we thought at a time when social distancing has imposed huge changes to our social habits, this program We'll explore different aspects of community, and we're looking at documentary films all over the world um, and basically sorting the dates and everything as we speak. So hopefully when this podcast airs, um, we'll send a, we'll put a link on the bottom and you can see all the stuff we're, we're going to do. So we're very excited about that and hope that you'll join us um, for that program. And um, anyway, so the first film we're going to review is Clemency. So um, Jim, do you want to tell us a little bit about that film? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a film that's been kicking around for a while. Actually, it got a it got a maybe slightly undercovered release in the states already. I think, but it was the grand jury winner. I think at Sundance, uh, not um, this this year, but the year before that. It might be before that. I lose track to be honest. But basically, it's been around for a while, and it was one of these films which 
popped up at Sundance. Um, and it basically it follows a prison warden played by Alfred Woodard, um, who the film opens with a execution uh, which is botched uh, and is quite harrowing to watch, I think. And throughout the rest of the film, essentially, it follows the various different interests in the impending execution of another uh, prisoner, uh, Anthony Wood. And it mainly follows Alfred Woodard's character, Bernadine, who's the prison warden. And basically, the it's never said explicitly, but the, the varying tolls that this takes on her, uh, Anthony himself... Um, his loved ones, uh, those who were allegedly a victim of a crime he committed, although it's implied pretty heavily that there's been a miscarriage of justice there, although that's not really what it goes deeply into. Um, also his lawyer, and basically just how it seems to take a toll on everybody around him. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's a difficult film to watch, that's the usual thing that is put forth to something, it's a difficult film to watch, but it is a very emotional film, I think you get very involved with it. Um, I don't want to say it's difficult to watch, because I don't know if I find it that, I don't want to make out that it's a task to watch it, I do think it's an accomplished film, but we'll get into that in a minute. But yes, that's basically it. It follows this story of the 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 slow march towards the execution of this prisoner. Yeah, I mean, I'll just chime in um, with your mention of um, difficult to watch because at the first uh, ten minutes um, during that segment that you were mentioning about sort of a botched uh, execution, uh, very intense um, scene, uh, like the way it was shot, everything um, super dramatic. Um, I was I was like, oh, oh, here's another gym pick again. Um, but I have to say, this is maybe one of my favorite films we've reviewed this year. Uh, I think it's um, it, it it made um, what is probably one of the ugliest, terrible places in in the world. You know, a prison. Um, the way it was shot was incredibly beautiful, but the emotion and um the storytelling and the psychological sort of issues that you know all of the characters were going through was done so well um i i i agree with you it's, it isn't a task to watch it's absolutely stunning it did make me cry a lot and i thought about the fact as we were just saying you know the i, I much prefer to watch films in the cinema but if i had seen this film in the cinema i think it would have been a lot. It would have been as hard of as as the other, some of the other task films you've tasked us with in the past, like um, just because it's so emotional, and that that speaks very highly for the way the film was put together, in my opinion. Yeah, mm. I think um, it, it's it's a very there, there's various different elements of the film that I think are just extremely well executed, but there's also a lot of it hinges on the performances for me, um, which isn't to downplay the like the you know the work and kind of all the technical aspects, which is done very well. But I think pretty much across the board, the acting is extremely extremely accomplished. So yeah, no, I'm I'm a big fan of this. I'm wondering what Mark thought of it. <laughs> yeah, I I think I'm I'm possibly less enthusiastic than you two because I think there are one or two moments where the the film appeared to me just a wee bit too written um there's one moment in particular where 
um, Bernadine and her husband, who's played by Wendell Pierce, who's uh, a wonderful actor with a fantastic baritone almost voice. And he um, says to her something along the lines of, um, I, I don't think you want to live in fragments anymore. And that is, that's just, I think that's too, that, that's too much of a writerly line. I'm not sure that that's something that people who are intimate with each other really would say. I understand the reasoning for um, putting in a sentence like that, especially when you have actors like Alfred Woodard and Wendell Pierce who can give every single um, exchange of dialogue great emotional resources that they had that they possess but um, there are a few moments that are sort of like that for me however um, the as I said like the performances are great across the board I think Jim's right um, particularly the way in which Alfie Woodard tries to just keep the lid on everything but you can see from the from the moment actually when um, her one of her majors the person who kind of runs the show from the back room uh, when he says warden warden but only gets to her, through to her when he calls her by her name, Bernadine. And there's a callback to that reasonably near the end as well. Um, and I'd say like the, the quality that you were talking about, the emotional quality, I think comes through with the film's quietude because it's a very, um, it's a very quiet film. Every scene that you think is going to have a kind of stark emotionality to it doesn't really, there are a few that do. But the, the tempo is just slower, more drawn out, and it's about the powers and the quiet observations that build up gradually as the film goes along. Yeah, I think I'd um I'd agree with the, the like the last thing that you said there, Martin, in terms of it's the quiet moments that really make the film come home, right? Because there is a stoicism to Alfre Woodard's character which I think then permeates throughout the whole film, in all honesty. Um, and that really brings the the tone home, in the sense that it's not... It's another one of these films, and I, I often find myself saying about films like this, it avoids histrionics, right? It kind of lets the, the harrowing nature of the situation speak for itself. Um, it doesn't need to lean on kind of these very actorly emotional moments because they come through in the quieter ones. And that, to me, I, I take your point about some aspects of it being a little appearing very written, right? But I would argue that I think the writing's actually quite good in that respect because it would have been a lot easier to lean on that sort of aspect to get the the power of this subject across. And I don't think it relies on that. Um there are moments I think where it ramps it up a little bit, and one that one that really stuck in my mind is actually so it's um, Richard Schiff is that the actor's name who plays he plays Anthony Woods' um, lawyer, and it's just, he has this moment where he says like think about this when I win my client gets to not die, and it's just it, it's little bits like that which then I think give it the sort of like maybe slightly more heightened punctuation which you know really hammers at home but generally it's a very controlled film and that is across the board in terms of the performances the approach of kind of like these surroundings which are shot really kind of yeah i mean it's like, it's like amanda said in the intro it sounds like an almost ridiculous thing to say that it's shot beautifully right when it's these claustrophobic prisony interiors but it is 
but it gradually kind of like becomes more so as you go along. I think once again, another marker that I've spoken about on films here quite a lot, I think the sound design is excellent. Um, I think in particular the execution at the start and then a scene towards the end, the sound mix, I think, just really brings you into what the character that it's focusing on at the time is experiencing. I, I think it's a really accomplished film. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's um, perfect, because I basically never say that about any film, right? But it is very good, and I think it treats the subject with the uh, the seriousness it deserves, but in a way where it's still quite factual, stoic. It, it's not... There's a lot of emotion here, but it's not showy, performative emotion. I find it a very powerful film to watch. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I did read that, um, the criticism that, you know, it was a, a bit too written in the story. Um, and maybe it, maybe it wasn't necessary to have that because the performances were so strong. But, um, but it, you know, I, a lot of times I find myself perhaps um, because I come from a documentary and sort of a filmmaking background and, and, the, and the visuals and the technical that I focus a lot of times on on that part of, of my film criticism. And from that standpoint, it was near perfect to me. But um, I, I, I'm not always as adept at as realizing performances, are, you know, are being amazing or, or, or terrible. But um, in this case, I just could just everything about what made this emotional was the acting um, from all of the characters. And um, so it really didn't um, bother me if it, I think what you were feeling or seeing within the eyes or the, you know, the emotions of the performances were then also re-emphasized in some of the dialogue. It, it, it sort of just worked for me. Yeah. And the, the, the performances are the heart of it. I mean, particularly Alfre Woodard's. Like, I, I think it, it's important to know like what a, what a good job I, th- I feel she's done, because if you were to look at it on the surface, the, her character's demeanor in that professional setting doesn't particularly change a huge amount from scene to scene. But it, there's a lot of subtle work in terms of just the way the, like like there's one scene later on where like just the way that she's kind of like slumped against a wall whereas before she wasn't she was kind of striding around confident you know or at least projecting confidence um early on and just that contrast it's a small thing but it really kind of like just shows the increasing toll that the events of the film are taking on her and i think and for me um you know, this probably speaks to my own political sensibilities, but I think that's one thing that I think this film has done extremely well. It goes into how this process of execution, death row, and the mechanisms involved, and you know how how these things actually happen. How it takes it diminishes all of us. It diminishes all of us, and it takes a toll. And I think it captures that really well, and in a way which cannot be pushed to the background. Um, and that comes from those performances. I think it's a very good film and I think it would continue to look like a good film and still have um, a certain amount of visual impressiveness if it didn't have the performances that um, are at the heart of it. You know, and I think the key ones are Alfred Woodard and then Aldous Hodge as Anthony Wood, I think are probably the key ones for me. Um, but 
if it didn't have those, I think it would it would lose a lot, I think. It would lose a lot. But as with so many films that are spoken about in the show, it doesn't, you know, you don't need to worry about that. It has them, right? So um, when you bring it all together, I think it was, it was extremely effective. So it's a film that is well worth seeing. Um, and I think to speak to Amanda's kind of like, you know, the experience of how you watch it, I think this is one of the first films I've watched during the lockdown period where I do think it probably loses something from having to watch it at home. I would have liked to have seen this in the cinema. Yeah, that's that's probably a point. Um, there's there's a thing the thing too you mentioned, Jim, about uh, you're almost going to say that this um, the whole problem of capital punishment almost results in like a death of interpersonal relationships, and there's a moment where. Alfred Woodard's character is in a bar with the deputy warden and she's had a few drinks and she has this kind of slurred mm-hmm. question and all she asks is, so how are your children? And she's just not interested. She's plainly not interested and she's just doing this because it's the thing to say to the person who you work with. But she would just, I think she would just prefer to sit in silence. And that thing about all of the people who she comes into contact with who work in the prison, who work in close proximity to... Um, to death row and to the lawyer Marty who's the probably the only thing keeping Anthony Anthony's spirits up at that point um, there's the, everyone there is afflicted by this and there's a wonderful scene with the chaplain who is one of the only sympathetic people around really to her because everybody else sees her as a sufficient boss character and I think the chaplain knows what a toll this takes on her even if she doesn't like showing it and they have a tiny moment, which is very understated, where she just admits, I can't sleep. And that's the scene. And you go, well, that is exactly what needed to be done in that in that moment. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's full of moments like that. And I, I'm very pleased you mentioned that scene in the bar, actually, because that is one of the... I didn't mention it there, but that's one of the ones I had. And it's, it, it's this idea, like, she's doing this very good performance of somebody who's a little drunk, to be honest, but... There's a sadness there, like there's yeah. a real there's a real sadness there which comes through Crystal Clear, and it's it's done very subtly. It's just in little movements, the way she talks, and as you say, kind of like moments like that with the the chaplain later on. I think that underpins the whole film, and it really, I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed with it. Um, so I guess we all pretty much agree that it's um, you know a, a, a film worth checking out, and uh, you know uh, so it's currently out um, on online, right? Um, yep, I believe it's out on. I think it's on. It occurs on at home, on. but it came out on the seventeenth. So okay. yeah, so it played as part of Ed Film Fest at home. Uh, disappeared for a very short period, and now it's back. So the next film we're going to review is The Traitor, uh, directed by Marco Bellocchio. Uh, so Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? So as, as mentioned, um, The Traitor is directed by Marco Bellocchio. And it's a film about a character called uh, Tommaso Bucetta. He's a soldier in the, um, in the Cosa Nostra, in the, in the Mafia. Um, and he's essentially the lowest level of the structure, but he has all the information about um, the initiates, how the rights take place, the influence, the, the past and present crimes. And we meet him at a time when the mafia are kind of, uh, they're stretching their influence into the realm of narcotics. They're starting to import, refine and trade in heroin. 
Um, but you can tell that he's not on board with this, um, either for um, idealistic reasons, that he doesn't think this is something that I, the Cosa Nostra should do, um, and because of the number of things that it entails doing, um, murders are more rampant, there are more violent crimes. Um, although, of course, there's also a history of that. But uh, what then happens is that he goes to Brazil to get further away from the day-to-day -day running. And while he's away, the Corleonosi, one faction of the Mafia, they kill a number of his associates. And at the same time, he's arrested in Brazil. And there's a rather, um, I would say, persuasive and inventive bit of interrogation involving two helicopters, which... Uh, might convince him to uh, go ahead with the um, extradition to Italy and they're going to try and interview him and amass information needed to prosecute um, as many uh, mafiosi as possible. That then happens, he's interviewed by a character called uh, Judge Falcone and the, the interviews run to about 500 pages worth of transcript and through that the Italian judiciary begin the process of the maxi trial, which took around um, six years or so to complete, um, because there's just so much, so many people to be prosecuted and there were so many cases to be tried. Um, but Bellocchio is having a grand time uh, staging the spectacle of the maxi trial, which I think we'll get to in a moment. Um, Jim, what do you think of the film? Yeah, yeah, I I enjoyed this I enjoyed this a lot, to be honest. Um... In particular, like, so it's quite a long film. So it's about two and a half hours, and it really does go through several different phases. You kind of have the initial phase in, in Sicily, where everything is set up. You have a little bit of a segment in Brazil, where Buscetta is, you know, living with his uh, wife. They've then got kind of the return to Italy, the staging of the trial, and then the trial then goes through several segments, right? In real life, it ran from, and in the film, of course, it ran from uh, nineteen eighty six through to nineteen ninety two, I think it was, um, and eventually uh, Tommaso Buscetta died in two thousand, I think it was, right? So it it really does go through several phases, and I think the one where Bellocchio is really having the most fun is, as Mark pointed out, the staging of the trial scenes, and and honest, honestly, in 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 a film which includes quite you know, quite a lot of graphic violence and descriptions of kind of like all these various intricacies of the Sicilian Mafia. There was something just quint like quintessentially Italian feeling about those courtroom scenes. They're very, you know, they're very kind of extravagant, like, uh, phrasing of things and people are arguing with each other and it's kind of this really weird setup and i think some are features of the italian justice system which i think to an american or a british viewer would be completely alien but it makes for an absolutely fantastically done set of sequences i think the the central performance um as uh tomaso buscetta by uh, pierre francesco favino is also really quite superb and he has to play it it, it it's quite funny watching this um, now, considering this film's been kicking around for a while, because it actually did remind me of The Irishman in quite a lot of ways. Just it, it, there's something about the whole, you know, tracking this mafioso like life over, you know, many many different periods, and you know, are they going to rat on people or are they not? What's the issue going to be? But I think what's unique about this one is it also comes from a fairly fascinating real life perspective in the sense that. 
which isn't to say the Irishman didn't, because of course it, it did. But what's fascinating about this one is it's not there's not any sort of like sense of remorse in uh, Massino's you know demeanor. If anything, he's he claims he's doing it because all these other people who've gone mad with the the heroin money have you know almost kind of like stained the good honor of the Cosa Nostra. It's um it, it's quite something. Um, I think it's a very good looking film as well. Uh, I, I I enjoyed this a lot. It, as I say, it's a long film, but I didn't feel the length at all. I think it's in that sense it's paced very well. I think the editing is quite good apart from there's a couple of bits where i i think you know we're maybe a bit heavy-handed with the animal metaphors i, I think those <laughs> those bits are maybe not so much um you know there's a couple of there's a bit with a caged tiger and there's a bit with a hyena where i'm like okay we're maybe like we're maybe getting a bit overly flamboyant here but by and large by and large i found it extremely effective and it really kind of brought me into it and uh brought me along with it so i i had a lot i i enjoyed this a lot i thought it was really well done really well made the central performance is very captivating and there's something about just the whole staging of the thing which just feels very apt and you can have a lot of enjoyment out of actually i think think as well what about you amanda I was just thinking about that, those tiger scenes, and you probably just had a flashback to Tiger King and got really upset or something like that. Well, I have now. I have now. I didn't. I didn't. But now that you brought it up, yeah, yeah. Tiger. Oh God, Tiger King. God, that's a different. That's a different lockdown world. That there were there were a lot of things that this film um, reminded me of in some aspects. I mean, of course. You know, it's a mafia film, so you think of the Irishman, you think of you know Godfather and whatnot, and and kind of the history of films I've grown up watching. Um, but I really liked this one because I don't know enough about. I mean, I'm in part I'm very keen to go to Sicily, um, and secondly, I'm um, you know I don't know enough about sort of the history of um, the mafia in Italy. So I think it was as much of a biopic learning, um, you know. For me and i quite enjoyed it and i agree that the film was quite beautiful and it reminded me a little bit of some of sorrentino's films as well so like i definitely felt like it was a nice mixture between you know those those films you grow up watching about you know the italian mafia in new york and and uh and this so uh, you know it, it was good i mean unfortunately i kind of have a thing where when we watch these films i I watched them very close to each other, so I had just finished watching Clemency, and that film really blew me away. So this film was like, it was good, um, and uh, you know, and, and it was it was interesting, and I thought the performances were great, um, but you know, it didn't it, it didn't measure up to the other film for me. So um, so I, I recommend it, um, but it wasn't like it didn't blow me like away in mm. that essence. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we all enjoyed the the, the tiger. The tiger flashback, which is which is about as clear cut an instance of like um, you know heavy symbolism as you'll get, I think, this year in films. Yeah, um, I it, really. I, sorry, Jim. Go ahead. No, I was just saying like it's 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 funny. Um, Amanda mentioning Paolo Sorrentino, right? Because the the, la- the last time I I can remember looking at an animal metaphor in a film oh, and kind of going right, this is very on the nose, right? I, I, it, oh, it was still it was a film. Don't be wrong, it was a film that I enjoyed. I think it was it was, it was Loro. It was the the Berlusconi film that Sorrentino made, and there's like some scene where like. <laughs> I can't even remember what the context is, but basically a garbage truck flips over and then like a rat runs across the road. It's like, uh, okay, we get it. 
when we get it <laughs> right but so it's just it's just quite funny that you know with similar kind of idea you know corruption you know italians like it's just funny that those um maybe slightly overbearing animal yeah. metaphors found that, our, found their way in but Lo- i mean lauro begins with is it a lamb that dies with air conditioning yeah like yeah it's it's incredibly on the nose. It's it's striking the nose at some force. Um, there's there's um, also before I talk about the, uh, the the depiction of the Maxi trial here because um, a number of films, including one by Sorrentino, um, Il Divo, um, has a moment which is set in the and actually the character who's the subject of Il Divo, um, Andreotti, the former prime minister, he turns up in this for a scene or two. Yeah. Um, the maxi trial is staged here like a carnival. It's uh, this huge concourse of cages in the um, Italian court system that just have every every which direction there's another problem. <laughs> like the cages at the back filled with members of the Cosa Nostra just you know hurling invective at whoever's nearest. Um, above them there's a gallery full of journalists first who won't stop uh, clicking the, the shutter on their cameras and uh, mafia wives turn up and start bellowing in support of their husbands uh, that's before you get to the judiciary themselves who are in this little area uh, just in front of the cages all murmuring and uh, you know declaiming things themselves then you get to the judges and the judges the judge actually is the funniest part of that whole sequence to me because he's so exasperated and just grows more and more exasperated as it goes along it's more you know you can't do that right now stop what are you saying i can't do this the whole time it's getting worse and worse and the funniest thing of all actually is the bullet case is the the sort of bulletproof case that that, um that bichetta is hidden in the entire time because they're worried somebody might fire a you know just pop a bullet his way um it's a ridiculous sequence but it's a lot of fun in a movie which is very sober otherwise so um it's it's clearly the 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 greatest of its pleasures but it's also a conspicuous uh conspicuous um exception in terms of its tone um it's also worth saying that it's um as Jim mentioned, it's quite a long film, 150 minutes or so, and it doesn't fill the time with the sort of thing that you would expect necessarily, which would be, a, as again, as Jim mentioned, the kind of reckoning or a moral or emotional reckoning, a kind of reckoning with conscience. It's not that, really. Um, it's instead, I think, a study of symbols of the Cosa Nostra. And as mentioned with the tiger scenes and other things, um, like the moment which is hearkened at the very end, hearkened back to at the very end, um, which involves uh, an assassination that Bichetta carried out in his earlier days. And that's the one where the film seems to reveal what it actually thinks of Bichetta or reveals Bichetta's own view of himself, which is as this honourable soldier in an honourable tradition that is being corrupted by people, as opposed to a dishonourable tradition yeah. just in and of itself. So it's interesting in that in that case, but I think the unfortunately its proximity to the Irishman diminishes it in my eyes a little bit because the Irishman just... Uh, hits all of those points which this misses yeah it's in, it's interesting i i also i also happened to watch this film rather coincidentally like literally the same day that i did like a travel show episode about sicily where they kind of like were going on about you know it'd been amusing the tourists find it to be like a you know a godfather theme park or something yeah. i for me it did touch slightly different things to the irishman like i did i i did find it there's a lot of overlap on that Venn diagram, but there's something about the, there's something about also the device and the like. Is it we've spoken about kind of like the 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 segments the film kind of 
lines up in. Mm. And one of the ones that I find the most interesting is when uh, Buscetta is doing his interviews with the the judge Giovanni Falcone, who rather infamously was was assassinated. Right? You know, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's not particularly. I mean, I think the I think the airport's named after him now. Right? So that's not particularly a big surprise. But the, the conversations that the two of them have to me were actually really quite fascinating. That's something. There's something about that, that kind of respect being found across those two different kind of arenas that's something I'd, i i've not seen huge amounts of in other mafia films in my view um so it, 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 there is there is a bit of difference i think there's something about assessing the toll on an individual man across time that the irishman for me does superbly and i think does far better than this film but there's something about the um what exactly is this honor that everybody seems to sort of talk about within the mafia, like what is that? I feel like this captures it um, a lot better. It maybe doesn't get into the motivations of an individual very well, but I think in terms of the way they're this system and you know, like Omerta or like you know, whenever you you break it or whatever, the way that is viewed within Cosa Nostra as an organization, I think this film does a very good job of. Well, did you ever see the film Heat? Isn't that similar in that sort of um, relationship between a cop and? Yeah, yeah, because you've got yeah, because you have that you have the conversation between I forget the characters' names, but between Pacino's character and De Niro's, where it's quite clear there's a level of respect. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. that's where I guess maybe I was coming back to this idea of just De Niro films in general or you know like Scorsese films and Coppola films this idea of honor and you know the different roles of cops versus versus um the mafia and and how they they it 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 felt along those lines completely to me like I I definitely I think it's when I started to watch The Irishman I was like here's another one of these films and then and when I was watching this I felt the same way but um but I did particularly like that I was in a different setting and, and I, you know, I was in Italy and, and I was also, it, it felt like a very Italian film as well. So yeah, that, that's my thing. It feels super, it feels super Italian to me. Like it, it does feel like the sort of, the sort of film that only an Italian could make <laughs> about this sort of, um, the sort of trial like that, that came through very strongly for me. I but think. It's interesting yeah. to contrast it with the um, Scorsese and Coppola movies because those are films about glamour those are films in which the main well, it's it's the it's the really annoying and always uh, inevitable and um, you know, never reductive. Sorry, always reductive debate about uh, mafia movies, which is that they glamorize their subjects, and it's like, well, their subjects are glamorizing themselves all the time. You know, a, a filmmaker who's attentive to narrative creation and like establishing and um, maintaining an image, a certain image would be remiss to miss those things. Um, here it's interesting because the the way it's curtailed the narrative, there's a I'm sure there's a, a version of Bichetta's life in which you could include in those kind of self-glamorizing narrative modes, but they don't do that here. They cut it at exactly the point of 1985, 1986, where he um, is beginning to form this objection to the current state of the Cosa Nostra. And that, that's an interesting diversion away from um, the usual the usual quote-unquote problems about um, you know mafia depiction on film all right well the traitor is coming out very soon correct uh 24th of july i believe okay so we'll check out that we'll send you a link um, when it's available 
So earlier this week, I sat down with Tim Barrow, the director of Riptide, and uh, Robbie Jones, the director of photography. Um, what's really fascinating about this film is that it's uh, Barrow's third featured film. Um, he's done all of his films in in uh, Scotland, but um, it was it was uh, done for twelve thousand pounds, so a full feature film, and I think it looks really, really fantastic. Um, we'll we'll share a link to to um the the website where you can see where it'll be um playing but it did have a short release um online um and the scottish mental health arts festival there and they had a q a but they sat down and talked to me about the film and uh filmmaking in scotland and here's a little clip from that so i'm here with tim barrow and robbie jones um to talk about their latest film riptide uh riptide just premiered at the scottish mental health arts festival um online and um hello guys thank you for joining us hi hello how you doing great so um tim you directed this film it's your third feature that you've directed um tell me a little bit about but it took a little bit of time took six years to make tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about the idea and um what inspired you to to make this film sure it's um schizophrenia is something that's been uh as a concept it's been in my head for a wee while because i should say up front as well i have no first-hand experience of schizophrenia um and that was real important when we came to making this film because we had to do tons of research and find out what it is and what it isn't um but i grew up in the village of roslyn um, just south of here and just over the glen from us is somewhere called Roslyn Lee and that's a psychiatric hospital um, it's no longer used as a hospital now so growing up it had this aura to it and um, we knew people who worked there and we knew people who went there so um, that was something that I knew sort of as a kid, I was kind of interested in, maybe kind of puzzled by. Um, and then the next significant instance of it is when I was at drama school and in 2000, uh, I was in London and I went to see a play called Blue Orange by Joe Pennell. Um, and it was an amazing play, it is. And, but it was about um, a young black man's experience of schizophrenia and, uh, his journey through the NHS um, and the pressures on the NHS. Um, so it's a fantastic story. But again, that was something that I went, oh, I'm really interested in that. So then we wind forward to 2012, where I was um, involved in screening our second film, The Space Between. And I was still thinking about, okay, well, I'd like to make another film after this what ideas are there and this idea of schizophrenia is something I thought oh that's worth exploring and then the idea popped into my head a schizophrenia love story and I went oh that's real interesting um so when the time came to actually do some research into it I first of all I called up the Royal College of Psychiatrists and um I said um this is what I'm interested in doing making a film about schizophrenia could I talk to someone about it could I interview them and this really, really helpful woman on the phone said, yes, a uh, person you should talk to is Professor Stephen Laurie, and he's head of psychiatry at Edinburgh University. So luckily, I was able to go meet him and interview him and explained what I was doing uh, and why. And I said, through great ignorance, 
um, is it possible for two people with schizophrenia to fall in love? And he said, yes, Bill and Maureen. And I went, all oh, right, of course, of course, because people with schizophrenia and other um, psychiatric conditions, of course, they fall in love and they have relationships and they have families and they hold down jobs and do all sorts of things that all of us do or wish to do. Um, but that began a period of research uh, into schizophrenia. Um, and, uh, and pretty soon I started writing and then I had an early draft of the script, which I sent to Robbie and Robbie uh, pretty much persuaded me that we should make the film. So Robbie, what, what did you see in the script that made you want to make, and this is your first um, uh, feature film as, a, as yeah. a director of photography. So what, what made you want to take this challenge on? Yeah, um, well, I suppose my kind of backstory was that I was at uni um, and I saw in the university library this uh, DVD, The Inheritance, um, and I saw that it was like a, a local made Scottish feature film by a small team of passionate people. Um, and I watched it and I thought it was great. And I thought, wow okay you know like you know you can do this people are doing this out there so i was kind of aware of of tim at that point um and then around about that time or just after i i kind of found out that his his second feature or his, his first directing um space between was showing so we kind of we got in touch at that point um and so i already knew that you know i liked his uh his style, his vision, his storytelling. Um, so that, you know, that hooked me in. And then, um, yeah, I read the script and I just thought it was, it was beautiful. It was really, it felt really honest and, you know, like a real exploration of, of mental health and, you know, a love story all kind of wrapped in together. Um, and yeah, I think it was quite an early draft, but I could just tell that it had really, great potential and I felt like I connected with it and I as soon as I read it I just started kind of picturing certain shots and styles and colors and things kept jumping out and I thought it'd be mad not to try and make it. Uh, one of the things I noticed is just there's so there's a lot of shots and there's a lot of locations and and um it's and and then you you know you mentioned the budget of being twelve thousand pounds I think it's really inspiring um that the work that can can be done um with with what with what you what you were able to accomplish um it, how long did it take to film all of and and all those locations and and um and what was that process like? I mean, it, we've been saying six years because we pretty much started in 2014. Um, and we shot quite a lot, actually, in early days in 2014. But because of um, schedules and other commitments and things, we would only shoot a couple of days at a time or three days or four days. Uh, it was the longest I think we were ever together. And uh, very unhelpfully, Robbie decided to move to London which which also that. turned into uh it just became a blessing because you go okay like any challenge in filmmaking film 
films are really really hard to make um so you go okay what can what can we do within these parameters and it really i think robbie it kind of galvanized us because we knew okay if we're going to get you up from london uh I mean, we've got to make it worthwhile and we've got to yeah. ensure right we're shooting for two days or three days and here's all the locations mapped out and we've got to be really really tight and specific yeah there was um yeah we just did a lot of planning and made sure that you know it, yeah like you say it was it was worth the trip and we um it well i I've said before that it kind of felt like we're doing a series of short films in a way that we knew that we connect, but, um, uh, you know, and it was a challenge at times to connect them, but um, it, yeah, it, it was kind of great because we had the time in between to process and think about what we'd done. Um, and each time we got together, a little bit more time had passed, we'd watched the footage, we'd kind of absorbed it and, maybe learn a few things and then we kept applying, you know, that knowledge as we went. Um, and we kind of slowly grew as well. Like, you know, slowly getting more crew or people coming along to help us. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of worked in a weird way. <laughs> and Tim, you're, um, you're also the, the main actor in the, in the piece and um, a very, very uh, wonderful performance and also of um, Elspeth, your, um, Ava, your, your love interest in the piece. Um, so how did that, uh, I, who also happens to be your partner, correct? Uh, you know, so how did that work in terms of um, being able to direct, you know, this film under low budget, small crew, and then act, and then, you know, how did the dynamics sort of work within the crew um, to make that happen? They were very generous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as far as Elspeth's concerned, as soon as I met her, I thought, I want to make a film with you. And, um, and I met her as an actor as well. And then shortly after that, we um, started going out. Uh, so we kind of we grew together our relationship grew together just as i was starting to make this film as well so there was lots of figuring out of okay this is brilliant because elspeth's come in so and we can make this love story work and with robbie um as such a really good kind of third eye on things um from a script point of view initially uh of course, he was contributing ideas about how to shoot things and how to kind of, I think as well, add production value um, from the start. He was able to sort of chip in with ideas on this kind of growing relationship that we see throughout the film um, and things that we can do to enhance it and, and keep things interesting. Um, so that was really helpful in the writing of it. Uh, as far as the, the acting of it, I mean, I knew I wanted to play this character and I'm, I'm an actor, so um, I wanted to have this opportunity to do it. And the experience of directing the previous film, The Space Between, um, meant that I could, I thought, oh, well, I've done that. Um, so there is a way it is possible for me to do this, um, not just as a principle in terms of can an actor direct? Yeah, but could I do it on a kind of a really tiny budget and, um, but yeah, because it, a lot of it revolved around trust. Like I trusted getting on set, 
with Robbie. Sometimes it was just the two of us and I would um, solicit his opinion always about what was going on, what we were doing, what I was doing. And uh, that was incredibly helpful. And that just kind of kept going all the way through. And I think the thing about shooting over six years is that we get so used to each other and we watch so much footage go over and over stuff that by the time we come to shoot the next bit, we know what's working. We really know what we're wanting to get to. Yeah, I think the first couple of shoots, we really began to kind of become on the same page, didn't we? And, um, you know, sometimes when you're acting in the scene, you know, it's, it's like you alluded to, it's, it's kind of harder to direct and see what's going on. But we were able to just have this communication and I kind of knew what he was after in some ways. So obviously there was a lot of discussion beforehand and watching footage back and things, but there was also just... Um, Tim was great and just trusting me and I would say I think I think you'll like this the way it's going and we would keep going you know keep moving on and that was really productive way to shoot as well. One thing I love watching is when actors and the camera it's not the camera it's the it's the cinematographer um, or the operator um, when they start to work together and you can see how the camera's responding to so Robbie would be responding to what Elspeth's doing and she would after a while start to sense that and so respond in a different way. It becomes this wonderful dance and it's like, and you see it, the proofs in the footage, like you see it, you see when you've got these people who are kind of in sync with one another. So it's, it's lovely to see and it's great in the edit because those takes just stand out and they're the ones that we use. Yeah, I wasn't afraid to get the camera in close and uh <laughs> yeah well I, yeah. I, I read in some of the program notes that you know you call it like a, a road movie um and and it just certainly feels that way there's a there's this element of documentary sort of close-ups and you know and the confusion of of mm -hmm. you know of of the shots and whatnot you know sort of emulating you know what's going on in jacob's head and 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 um, I, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Madeline's Madeline. I don't know if you saw, saw that, but that film was about um, mental health as well. And um, it, and we reviewed it a, a year ago. But but really really well done and and visually capturing, you know, what's going on sort of psychologically. And I, I thought I thought you did that really well. Um, was the time six years? Did, did it? Do you think it helped taking that taking your time because you were able to sort of process these shots and think about it a lot or or would would you have you know or or do you think you, it would have been better to do it quicker and this was just like you said a a matter of of necessity hmm. <laughs> you just i mean hindsight's a wonderful thing you just you just don't know um i think of course going through it and editing took a wee while and so there'd be days when I'm going, I wish it was all done. I wish we'd done it a lot quicker. It is what it is. It's the parameters that anyone has to work within, within film. So be it. That's what it is. And you just kind of get on with it. It's, it's the same as when you're on set and it's 4 a.m. and you haven't quite got the shot. It's like you just got to keep going. You just got to get it. And the chance that that'll probably be a really, really good shot. Um, yeah, it's six years it's kind of it's quite hard to quantify but it is wonderful because 
eight days ago, we didn't really know what this film was and we didn't know if people would like to it or would respond to it in the way they have. And it's just been extraordinary. This, the feedback's been just wonderful. And then there's been quite a lot of people saying, I really like it because of this and because of this. And it speaks to this part of my experience, which is just a real compliment. So now we know, okay, it, all that work has been worthwhile because we made a film and any film that gets made is an absolute miracle because there's so many things against it. Like everyone talks about the challenges of filmmaking, doesn't matter about the budget or the, the time or whatever. But if you've made a film that works, then everything's worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of you, you know, you so you've spent six years making this film, it's beautiful, and you're very excited taking it to film festivals, like you know, uh, submitting, and then this COVID 19 pandemic hits, and all <laughs> film festivals go away or you know, are a halt, and all of a sudden, filmmakers are put in a you know, a, a like a terrible situation. Um, but uh, very luckily, uh, the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival um, went online and uh, chose your film, and um, it was very pronounced in the, you know, on the website and whatnot, and allowed people to see it. So, uh, how how did that all come about? And and I, I think in some ways it's positive because it got, you know, I think probably a lot of people watched it and and whatnot. But I'm just curious how what your take is on 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 submitting films during a very very trying time for for, for filmmakers. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, I mean, I'm sure it's, we would we would have loved a, a premiere in a cinema, you know, wouldn't we? Um, but like you say, Amanda, you know, we we maybe ended up with more views um, and interaction, at least right now. Um, and the the mental health festival in Scotland, the, they were fantastic, weren't they, Tim? So I think we feel quite lucky. Yeah, we do. Um, because a few months ago, these are really sad and strange times and there's an awful lot of people have passed away and um, and what, what three months of lockdown is doing to us all psychologically, who knows? Um, but it's not, it's not the most obvious time for being, for trying to make films or any kind of art, um, let alone trying to bring new stuff into the world and encourage people to see it. Um, so yeah, a few months ago, we, things were looking a bit bleak because we've been accepted into a few festivals and we had all sorts of plans to kind of dot the screenings around because we knew because of our previous films that we could stage screenings ourselves and call up cinemas and they would accept it. And so we thought, right, cool, we've got two years ahead of us of, of screening and touring the film. And, and that's, that's so exciting. Uh, it's it's kind of worked out massively in our favour having this one week of showings. So you pick any date for a premiere, a chance that our loads of people can't go. Um, so we had a week where people could watch the film at any time that they chose. And so we've got far more views than we would have been able to have at a cinema showing. And we got just tremendous response. And it was also us, I think, feeling that we could dip our toe in the water and just yeah. and, and just test it and see what comes mm -hmm. back. Um, and all this great stuff's come back. So that's made us reassess, I guess, about what we can do with the film. And already we've 
had people reaching out to us saying, oh, we're interested in screening it or showing it or, um, and so it's great from a film point of view, but also we think possibly we can try and do a bit of good with the film. And if there's any way that this story can try and bust some myths or kind of um, destroy a bit of stigma around schizophrenia, then that's even better. So there's a few things working with uh, NHS or hospitals or organizations that we can do as well. Um, so it's really strange times. We feel very lucky, I think, to have had this week of screenings where the film's gone really well. We don't know lots of what's going to happen in the future. We want to screen the film in cinemas as soon as we can. Um, and hopefully we'll get a few more festivals and then maybe next year we can kind of tour it a bit more if things have kind of normalised. Yeah, and I think there was something positive um, just about being able to release it during lockdown because it, it was something hopeful to kind of concentrate on for a little while and people, people have the time to watch films and, you know, they need distractions and... Um, I think it was great for us to know that we could get it out there and start that journey despite other challenges at the moment. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a festival like this shows how important it is for for that for it to exist. But particularly at this time, it's good that festivals are going forward in, in unique ways. And I think trying that they're trying out this as much as the filmmakers are. In terms of setting your business up in Scotland, I know you're, you you grew up in Scotland, but um, you both have spent some time in London. Um, why have you um, why have wh why are you dedicated to the filmmaking in Scotland? I mean, it's certainly beautiful. Like your film is a testament of how beautiful like uh, it is to film in Scotland and um, and how talented people are within the Scottish film industry. Um, but uh, but but how how do you see filming? In Scotland is different than perhaps working in London. I mean, you've kind of said it. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful place, and there's an amazing vibe here, amazing crew, and maybe it's you know smaller than it it deserves to be, but hopefully that's slowly changing. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me personally, I I always loved Scotland. I I wanted to go to London, kind of just to get. A little bit um, of a, a, an experience of bigger sets um, and kind of worked my way up as a camera trainee and then a camera assistant um, for quite a few years. I was always shooting things myself in, in the background at the same time um, and it just felt right. To, I felt ready to move back home and it felt like um, things were progressing in Scotland and things were happening and I, I wanted to be a part of that. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a great place to, to make movies. Yeah, I echo that. It is. Um, and I think countries need the national cinema. We need stories that we recognize about people that we recognize and places that we know. Uh, it's really funny. Like loads of, People have always loved shooting in Scotland um, and a lot of people in the film industry uh, are from North America and, or come up from London and shoot here and, and love it, whether it's period dramas or kind of fantasy epics um, or, kind of, or train spotting. Um, so it, it's an extraordinary place to film. Uh, people talk, cinematographers talk about the light in Edinburgh 
which is really funny because the weather changes all the time. But this, like the there's qualities here which are wonderful. Like you can shoot all over Edinburgh and capture a whole spectrum of different tones and moods and architecture. Um, it is an extraordinary country. It's my home as well, so it feels important to make films here and to tell stories here. And I think also maybe try and do some good, try and find a story that people might relate to or empathize with. Um, and also maybe, and films like have, have been great at this ever since they were first films, but try and tell stories of voices that you don't usually hear. And that's that seems to be real important for me to do or something that I identify with. And Tim, you know, your films in particular are just very Scottish. They just feel like they belong here. And that, you know, you, in your previous films as well, make a fact of it being here. And it's a part, a big part of the story. And that's really important. It's not like we're filming Glasgow and making it look like somewhere else, you know, or confining it to interiors. There's, there's, in three films so far, there's always a hell of a lot of uh, road trip kind of style landscapes and just because you love. So one thing I, I like to kind of um, think about is that, you know, I, as a filmmaker myself, I don't like to pigeonhole myself as necessarily just a director or producer. You know, I put on film events and I run Cenotopia and, you know, you're, bo you're both taking on various roles within your, within your, um, within your craft and, um, and also within even the camera department and directing and, 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 and whatnot. So um, what, what was your first passion or did you think you were gonna be, you know, only an actor or, and did the directing kind of come later or, you know, is this, is it similarly, do you kind of just see yourself as filmmakers and, and, and like to explore different types of jobs within the film? Obviously Robbie will talk for himself. Um, I think it's worthwhile saying that he took on a lot of responsibilities with this film as well. I mean, there was, there was producing that he definitely did and, and script editing um, that he definitely did and kind of bits of directing because if he's shooting me, a lot of the time he's able to say this is working and, and that's not so great. So the cinematographer, I mean, maybe it always does cover an abundance of work around a film. <laughs> Um, but he certainly took on all sorts of things. And from the beginning, it's definitely felt like myself, Robbie and Elspeth have been involved in, in taking the story, taking the scripts, sort of honing it, finalizing things and taking it further forward. In terms of um, acting was the first. I went to drama school and trained as an actor. Um, did mostly theater. I didn't really, started to do bits of film. I didn't know a great deal about it. I had to learn. And I think the directing came about because I thought, yeah, I want to, I want to do that. I want to tell this story. Uh, and then, so the Riptide being the second film that I've directed, I went, oh, I've, I've got a tiny bit more experience now, so I know these. I can put my energies into it, um, and I really wanted to do that. And it felt like, as a director, you can get to still work with the actors really, really closely. Uh, so I guess that's why it was a sort of natural bridge for me from acting. Um, from my side, yeah, I think um, 
I think most filmmakers to an extent have interest in quite a lot of areas of filmmaking. Um, I think it's, it's kind of good from a, uh, maybe like a job point of view to give yourself a niche and concentrate on that and specialize so that you can become better in that area. But, um, you know, I've, I've directed, edited and done various things. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of people that go to film school probably start off, uh, you know, maybe wanting to be a director or um, have an interest in that in some ways. And then it kind of just develops. So, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm still interested in, in directing as well, but um, I just realized as I, as I went and made short films and things that I was just more and more interested in how it looked and um, what story you could tell, you know, that way, you know, without words. And um, speaking of um, directing or, or acting, what are your ideal plans next for, for future work for both of you? Um, well, I'll go first. Um, Amanda, you know, we've been chatting. Um, I've, I've direct, co-directed with Elspeth, um, who was in the film, um, a short film recently. Um, and I did the cinematography for it. So that kind of came about through Riptide, really. Um, so it kind of shows how one thing definitely leads to another, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hope for the same to happen again. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to work with Elspeth as well, and I could tell that maybe like Tim, she was an actor that wrote and, you know, would want to direct and um, just at that stage she hadn't she'd done a lot of theatre but not film um, and we just kind of got together and I knew that we would we would get along and make something good together and have two different heads in the same way that me and Tim did um, coming from it from different perspectives. Um, Elspeth was the the writer director and you know she would work more with the actors and I would um, direct from more of a kind of, from my experience, like blocking and um, cinematography and ideas for set design or whatever. It, at the moment, it's very much a case of, okay, we really need to do justice to this film. It's been yeah, six years in the making and yeah. um, it's had eight days of a public run that's gone really well. And I'm just hungry for more people to see it. And now there's possibilities, um, which hopefully we can firm up into actual screenings and things, but to take it around the world and to do a screening in New York or do a screening in Melbourne, um, do plenty in London and tour the UK as well as Scotland. So hopefully we can get a lot of people to see it. I think I kind of have put my producer's head hat back on um, and it's now a case of putting the schedule together and reaching out and seeing what's happening. And certainly we're finding that as, as we'd sort of start to ease out of lockdown and things cinemas start to specify dates where they're open and cinemas in England, some of them are already open and screening. Um, and we, I think audiences are going to be really hungry for, for work, for new work. That's not Netflix or Amazon or stuff that they've been flicking through for the last three months. Um, but also stories of, of hope or of relevance or of empathy and, um, and hopefully we can 
create quite a star with Riptide and get it to a lot of people and um, and just see where we go and just keep building with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you bring on that good point when you know new filmmakers come into you know thinking about making a film they do think about the production the, the shoot days and whatnot but they don't think about the life of the film and, and you're you're right you're right in the middle of it so mm. <laughs> absolutely and i also think people understand the importance of doing local films and films that you know respond to the communities and neighborhoods that you live in and the and the you know and and the issues that you know we all you know humans face and whatnot and i think your film does that really really well and i and it's also really interesting because i think there there were like you said i think at the very beginning there would be people who might not have seen this film because they would not have been able to go to the you know to the festival and it might be reaching yeah. people that you you maybe least you didn't expect to so so we're all experimenting with this new <laughs> form of distribution and whatnot anyway, congratulations on um the on your <laughs> online and and looking forward to seeing where the film is um is going to go um in cinemas um all across the world so um for you to find out for everyone to find out more about the film and um learn more about it um you can go to riptidethefilm.co.uk and um and and check it out thank you amanda it's real important that we do celebrate the local filmmaking whether it's in edinburgh or wherever and there's so many as you touched upon earlier so many talented people here and often i guess we do feel like we're isolated and we just need to have opportunities like this to connect and you realize that you can make your stories that you really really need to make it is possible you just need to kind of keep gathering those people around you yeah. and we can do it and collaborating with talented talented collaborators um which you've done so well <laughs> hey thank you yeah i mean so many amazing uh crew members that we worked with and that we got to know through this film and that we hope to work with again so that's a big part of it too well thank you guys again cool So we're back and um, we're going to sort of do what we did last time where we discussed uh, BFI player and uh, the Japan season. There was, a, there was and is a lot of a really amazing um, uh, films on the BFI player, but um, equally, uh, movie is one of those really fantastic um, formats and platforms where um, it's very well curated and films that you might normally not see on Netflix or some of these other larger uh, streaming platforms uh, they they bring they bring to audiences around the world, and so we thought we'd take a look at what's in their current library and what's playing now, um, and uh, and and sort of recommend things we we would we would suggest. Um, I do believe, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, three or so. So, um, and I think during lockdown they they extended it, so it's really a good opportunity to kind of see some films that maybe you wouldn't normally see. But I will um, pass off uh, it to Mark and tell us what you recommend from the movie currently playing on the movie platform. Sure. Um, so I have to confess something first of all, which is I I may have I may have suggested this segment solely for the purposes of talking about the film which i selected <laughs> in fact i'll remove all doubt i definitely did this um the film is uh, let the sunshine in by claire denis um it's a horrible title in english let's get this out of the way first of all it's a very self-helpy horrible title um the 
translation, that line in French appears within the film and it's translated as The Beautiful Sun Within, which is far more handsome. I don't know why they didn't go with that. Anyway, um, <laughs> forgiven. Um, so the film is a really is really weird within the context of um, Cardinese filmography because it fits a trend almost perfectly, which is, you know, careening between tones in between films. It's not absolutely consistent that she goes from one incredibly severe film to a quite light film and then back to severe. But it's worth mentioning this is a filmmaker who directed back to back um, Trouble Every Day, which is about as vicious a movie about sexuality as I've ever seen to Friday Night, which is a delightful movie about uh, one-off sexual encounters and uh, fleeting desire and these sorts of things. This is firmly in the Friday Night mode. It's more like 35 Shots of Rum, um, her, her lighter, gentler films, not without their, 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 their fair share of pessimism though, however. Um, the film is about Isabel. Um, she's an artist in Paris. She's played by arguably the, the greatest uh, living actor, Juliette Binoche. And she is navigating her way around a number of um, number of relationships with men, number a number of whom are just comically unsuitable, comically unsuitable for her. She begins by uh, dating a guy called Vincent, who's played by Xavier Beauvoir, French film director. Um, he plays a banker here who's uh, uh, unspeakably horrible <laughs> and has this uh, scene where he's incredibly mean to. Uh, a waiter in front of her and don't know if she's if he's trying to impress her by being so mean so demanding and so like peremptory but it's, it's what he's doing and he, he asks at one point if he can wrangle up some gluten-free olives and he's just like is that a thing i don't know and it goes off um anyway so that doesn't actually is that a thing i still don't know that's why it's ridiculous um there's uh that that so that obviously fizzles out because it's just untenable. Though she has a very frank, uh, she reveals very frankly why this relationship was uh, originally viewed as a good thing later on in the film in a very funny, intense, and beautiful scene. Um, she moves on to an actor played by Nicolas Duvachel who uh, provides some of the best physical comedy in the film um, because every t he's a complete barfish and he has this great kind of absolute and he's absolutely internal the whole time and as he's speaking to her he's kind of bobbing and weaving his head all while she's enjoying his presence but he is ridiculously conceited from the beginning and every time he kind of looks at the bartender nods and this pint glass is uh, not even in shot it's out of shot handed to him and every time he put, he brings it back into the frame it's half empty <laughs> so this 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 cycle of almost like um like just prop humor is is fantastic in that um they have a, a kind of a ridiculous to and fro about what's going to happen after the evening um and they seem to be playing a, a a kind of interesting game of uh who can bring it to the brink um which is which is a fascinating relationship that they have um i won't say any of the other men who she goes on to because that's part of the pleasure of the film is watching how she kind of sifts in and out of their various presences uh, one of which is a beautiful dance sequence and Denise films are inundated with beautiful dance sequences um, not only the ending of Beau which is probably most people's favourite but 35 Shots of Rum has that incredible um, night shift sequence in which everything is shifting and fleeting the whole time this however has possibly my favourite which is um, a, a, at first a solo dance choreographed to Etta James's At Last 
which is just so swooningly romantic from from its first shot to its last. And at the end, all she says about the person who um, she danced with and who she wasn't familiar with was, ah, he dances well. And it's just a very, very sweet romantic scene. Um, Binoche's style of acting is this great, um, as I mentioned, I think careening between tones is what clearly these films films do. Um, and that's what Juliette Binoche's emotional um, performance does, is goes between kind of happy, optimistic for the future, might possibly find another love, and absolute dejection. It's all over for how could she have believed in it it's um it's all done and there are many moments where she's kind of having a breather to herself and then there are many others where she's just miserable that her love life is over um i, th I think i think the way that she flits between moods almost on a dime in some cases in some cases in a in a single scene in a single take is kind of incredible and a thing that she's been specializing in since hoza shen's flight of the red balloon essentially um, I'll mention that there's a, there's a kind of a brief, almost Hong Sang Soo-like structural break towards the end in which a famous face from French cinema just appears and he, uh, he, he stomps into the film like a rhinoceros. It's fantastic. You might as um, well just say who it is because I, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want, uh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I, I'll, I'll hold off because I want people to discover that scene because that's one of my well, favorite. Because I've not actually seen White Sun Shining. Oh yeah, 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 it's it's one of it's one of Denise I've not seen. So. Okay, I will not say it then, except <laughs> to say that the uh, the final scene plays over the credits, and it's simultaneously very romantic because it's a, a hilarious come on by one character to another. It's very very sad because you realise that her her emotions are seriously confused at this moment, and two, it's just stunningly beautiful because the whole time he's sort of in shadow and she is um she's sitting with the light streaming from the curtains on her face so she's literally luminous at this moment and it's it's like her self-confidence is just uh you know on the rise at this moment in a way which she needs but which also back to the note of pessimism in denise filmography could be false i mean the fact that he's in that room with her at that time is not a good sign for her love life really um I will. I'll. I'll stop there because I really could talk about this all day. But um, the film shot by Agnes Godard, and she uh, shoots everything in uh, mostly long lens. So there's just like this caressingly close uh, cinematography by her, which is, um, as mentioned, very very beautiful. And I will shut up now. But yes, I love this film. <laughs> well, um, I, I, you know, I, uh, we, we reviewed it, or I think I just reviewed it, um, one of our first episodes for Cinetopia, and um, I do remember sort of laughing that uh let the sunshine in was was mentioned as a romantic comedy because i didn't find that like you know the film is i mean it is funny in parts but like it's very tragic and so and uh, like most french films and we 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 also recently inter did another juliet binoche non-fiction so like mm -hmm. two very bad English titles for French films because they don't really, like you said, they don't really sort of represent what the films are about. Mm. Um, but both not funny per se as more like tragic or like, you know, very French, like very French comedies, if you will. But um, this is, I completely agree with you in the fact that that film is fantastic and so different than some other films that i've seen of claire denise and um i really particularly like the credits scene as well yeah, but i will i will i i did spoiler spoil spoil it last time but i won't <laughs> spoil it this time for our new audiences and jim yeah you know, what do you recommend 
Um, so I had a little, so partially driven by time constraints, I had a little look through the, the library to see the stuff I'd seen before, uh, so that I didn't have to watch it again. But fortunately, the, the, I, I, even within that, I had quite a lot. I found at least like four or five films I'd be happy to recommend. Um, the one I'm going to go with, though, is one which I think, to me anyway, seemed to slip under the, the radar a little bit at the time, um, is uh, Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves. Um, so... Partially because of what I said, because it slipped under the radar a bit. Also, she's got a new film out, I think, in between shows, basically. the I think on On Demand, First Cow is her most recent one, which uh, has led to many pun-worthy titles. But um, that's out. So, you know, Kelly Reichardt's kind of in the film criticism uh, vogue again at the moment. But this one kind of caught me by surprise. It was the first Kelly Reichardt film I saw, and I saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2014. It just happened to be on my schedule, and I managed to be able to go see it. And it then subsequently went on, you know, further further uh, festival runs. I think it debuted at Venice the year before that, like late in the year. And basically, it follows. It start. It opens with basically three. Um, eco-activists uh, played by Jesse Eisenberg Peter Sarsgaard and Dakota Fanning and the thing that really struck me about it, it at first is it doesn't really focus much on what they're doing like they're quite obviously undertaking um, particularly violent direct action shall we say um, and it doesn't really focus on that or the reasons for doing it. There's a little bit of a lead up, but it, it doesn't go for what could have been a slightly procedural, boring approach. It more looks upon the fallout amongst them uh, and the sort of like the way that all these characters interact with each other in the aftermath of what they have done. And. It's, it reminds me that in some ways, when I wrote about it at the time, it actually kind of reminded me a little bit of Shallow Grave in a bizarre way, and the way that kind of like people start to turn on each other. But it's a lot more tonally serious than that. I think it's also a much more dialed in performance from Jesse Eisenberg, who I think has developed this reputation for kind of like, you know, twitchy, annoying people. Um, whereas here, it's more kind of. It, it, if anything, he actually probably dials it back too much at some point. But. It's a very, it's a very gripping film, but it's all based in those three characters. Which isn't to say that Kelly Reichardt doesn't bring uh, directorial goodness to it, because she does. It's set in the American Northwest, and despite the kind of like the micro interactions with these characters, it's a very expansive setting, and I think that kind of contributes to the feeling, feeling of the film. Um, I'm not going to go on about it too much, really. I, I, I would strongly recommend it. You know, when you hear kind of like, you know, the aftermath of some eco-terrorist act, you could think that it's another one. You know, you could think it would be quite a polemical film almost, but it's not. It's very, it's very much about those characters and the way they interact and begin to mistrust each other and kind of the, these kind of like periods of moral self-examination that then follow afterwards and it's really very it's really very well done i like jesse eisenberg's performance and i think peter sarsgaard is actually excellent the slightly smaller role he has um and also like dakota fanning like after being 
after being so sort of like well known as like a child actor and kind of like being in everything, she just seems to have dropped off a little, a little bit. Um, but she is uh, superb here as well, and I think mainly the dynamic between her and Jesse Eisenberg is the the most interesting one. I really think it's excellent, um, and I think it's a good place to start with Kelly Reichardt. It's certainly where I started, um, but. Really, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that movie library, actually. And I think you can sign up for a free trial. I forget how long it is, but the the fact they now have this... I'm glad Mark suggested this segment, right? Because now that they have this library section, I've been kind of, like, you know, lamenting not being able to have, like, the online Criterion channel in the UK. Mm. This kind of, you know, abates that slightly. Not not, not quite as much, but it's, it's good to have a streaming service which is not Netflix and is not Amazon Prime and isn't pushing just kind of you know the latest cinematic confection to sound like an absolute wanker right but it's more like something that something that actually has an interest in providing access to something that was made before the 2010s is is good right so this is actually quite a good window into that collection i think as is mark's suggestion because they are recent films right but they're a particular type of film which i think you will sometimes struggle to find on the likes of Amazon Prime or Netflix. And I think watching these sort of films through services like movie is kind of a key thing And while we're in the period we're in, because, you know, I mean, who knows how long it is before cinemas return to normal, and I think these sort of films need an outlet. Yeah, and I think when you recommended this, I mean, I think recently, it was only about a month ago, that, like you mentioned, the library option has movie started um so when you did say oh uh let's do movie i was really just thinking about the way that's normally been structured <laughs> like so every, you know I, like they do yeah. curate you know and they give you kind of 30 days to go through and they did have separate um you know filmmakers they highlight or particularly different um you know parts of um filmmakers like oeuvre or whatnot so so i i was thinking about that i didn't actually go through the library um but then now i'm looking at the library and some of my favorite films well i was gonna pick mulholland drive just because uh i feel like mulholland drive did was a film for me that like got me into my amateur film criticism because i sat in that um, in the theater and like once the narrative broke a bit I just was like I get it and everyone around me was like what is wrong with you um, like so I, it's a great me- memory in my life of watching a film so the other film I would recommend in the library is Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell it's one of um, one of my favorite uh, documentaries I've seen I suppose that have come out in the last um 10 years or so so um and uh, that you know just a film about her family and um you know some of these revelations that happened um but uh, just a really personal personal film um and and i i just thought the way that it, it used um you know footage and then you know recreated a sort of footage as well um it's one of the best uh documentaries about you know like a personal story i've seen in a while and i highly highly recommend that um, but I did go through the now plane and wanted to highlight one of the things I really love about um, movie is that, you know, sometimes there's films, like you said, that you wouldn't normally get to see on Netflix. And I think back in the day, Netflix was also a little bit more open to different films and had the entirety of the Criterion Collection. But there's some films like um, and, and I know uh, that they worked on this particular strand called New Brazilian Cinema recently, and some films are exclusively 
um, through movie. And so I was taking a look at some of those films. Um, didn't have time to go through all of them yet, but I, I went and watched a short film called Breakwater um, by Chris Lyra. And as 2019 it's a story of LGBTQ film and you know it's uh it's 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 like collectively made it's a documentary it's it's particularly about um you know young women um in a group on a beach sort of it's about identity and um it's just quite beautiful and it's um it's really honest and open like women sharing their their lives and how they feel that you know i think even in within the notes which is also a really nice thing about movies they kind of they say it likens it to the vein of barbara hammer and i really did kind of feel that way it's a very positive story it's very community um generated and it's something that i would not not have ever seen if i hadn't um you know if i hadn't gone through this so you know, that film's worth a look, but definitely that whole segment that they put together, um, New Brazilian Cinema, is worth taking a look at. Am I right in saying Baccarat, which me and Mark, I think, sang the praises of earlier in the year? I think that's in there as well, because I know it was distributed by Mubi. So it's, def- it's definitely on Mubi, whether they put in that strand or not, I don't know. It's, but... I don't think it's in the strand, but it is up there, because it's um, there's a whole uh, portion of Mubi releases, which they've... Yeah, uh, bandied together. It's um, it it, it it is a really good thing, and actually, I'm I'm pleased Amanda mentioned uh, Sarah Pauly there, right? Because it, stories we tell comes up quite a lot, but another one of hers, which is on movie as well, is actually Take This Waltz, which by basically to, to be perfectly honest with you, if you were to summarize that film and the tone of it, by all by all reasonable measures, I should have hated it, quite frankly. I mean, like, re- just, it just it, like when I think about it, like, I should have hated that film on paper, but I watched it um, on its release. I watched it when I was still living in Cambridge. And honestly, I really liked that film. I really thought it was absolutely superb. Um, so what I also quite like about this is that you can sometimes kind of, like, track back and look at the other work of directors and their... Is that the one with Seth Rogen and... Um... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I really like that film too. And also shows, yeah, Sarah Polly has this really it's an amazing way to, you know, go to narrative film and documentary and make, you know, excellent films on both sides. Yeah, but I mean, there's a huge, like, as I say, I went with Night Moves because of the whole, like, the Kelly Reichardt thing. I mean, there's other films in there. Like, I mean, like, Moonlight is on there, actually, for starters, right? If, if anybody didn't see that. There's also, there's a documentary about Ai Weiwei, which I saw, which is on there and I think is really quite interesting. There's a whole bunch of like Darden Brothers films. I think the kid with a bike is the one that I would probably start with. It's just it, like there are a lot of really good film, really good films on there. And I think if there's anybody out there who is kind of lamenting the loss of um, art house cinemas, because a lot of them tend to be independent and they're taking a little bit longer to open up, I think then. I think this is a pretty good option because I mean a lot of these a lot of these services for new releases like they're good. I'm glad they exist. Um, I think I and the people on this podcast are maybe in a slightly privileged position in that we can sometimes get screeners to these things because some of these things are f- expensive, right? And movie isn't free, um, but there is a free trial, and I think after that, I think it's often pretty good value for money to be honest with you right now particularly with cinemas being closed um so yeah i mean there's a whole bunch of i mean i mean we we've normally recommended three films there right but in the course of talking about them and the other things we looked at and the way that you can look at other works by the same directors that we've all mentioned on that platform like there's plenty to get you going there yeah there is and it's worth mentioning too they've got an absolute 
um, a plenitude of films um, in from India, and there aren't really that many places where you can find Indian cinema beyond um, you know specialty sites. Netflix UK has a pretty good selection of uh, blockbusters and some classic movies, but not terribly many, and otherwise you'd need to go for individual movies via Prime. So they have got a fantastically curated series of um, parallel cinema and um, art house, as well as um, kind of upbeat musical comedies too. Um, I've been looking at films by Manny Call specifically, and by uh, Hukrish Mukherjee, um, and a wonderful film called Anand, which I don't think, I'm, I think may have uh, expired on there, but other films by the filmmaker are still up there. So I would recommend having a look at that strand particularly. Great. So, um, movie, movie.com, uh, movie.coe.uk do <laughs> don't know all of them. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll go into our final segment, uh, where we do another pick. Um, and this time we're, we're doing, um, short picks, uh, short film picks, but, um, I, we also wanted to particularly highlight, um, a series right now that's Scottish um, with the Glasgow Short um, the Glasgow Short Film Festival. Yes, um, they've created a, a, a series called Dive In, um, and it's completely free. Um, and basically, you can donate to a, a, a few charities um, that they're 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 highlighting. But it's um, their chance of bringing a bunch of independent exhibitors across uh, Scotland and um, showcasing some short films during this month. And um, I watched a film on there from Sea Change, which is a um, which is run by uh, Screen Argyle, um, and it's um, and I'm gonna botch the name. It's in Gaelic, so I have a little bit of uh, yeah, I, I pardon there. Um, but uh, it it means the 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 film is called um, yeah. Uh, older woman in Gaelic. So I will, I'll, I'll send the link to that. Um, so you can see the actual name and it's a, it's a lovely short film about a, um, an, an older woman with her sheep in, on, on the Isle of Harris. And it's, uh, it's just stunning and it's really beautiful. And it's also done by a filmmaker, a female filmmaker who, uh, went through the Scottish Documentary Institute. So, um, very local, very beautiful, very, um, special short film um and i highly recommend that but i also check like the one one thing that is important to note is that when when we that they're only going up for like 48 hours i'm, I'm sure you can look at look look them up and also go to the website to, to see whether or not you can find them elsewhere um so jim why don't you tell me your short film pick of the month uh yeah so the one i've picked is really very short and that is really a function of the point at which I came to find a short film to recommend for the show which is <laughs> shortly before we started recording um, but I, I picked it because it's just quite it sounds weird for me to phrase it this way but like Amanda will be familiar with it like the Americans describe it as cute right um, it's a history of the title sequence, which is only two minutes long. Uh, it's on Vimeo. And basically, it's just... It's conceived as, like, an intro to a, a fake documentary, and it just shows different um, titles in cinema um, done in the style of kind of, like, iconic ones, right? So, George Melier, um, Saul Bass's uh, Psycho one, um, the titles for Alien 7, um, Doctor No, things like that. And just... 
I, I find in a time where I'm kind of missing some of the iconic imagery of cinema, to me, like, it, it's quite nice to just have this little little bite-sized reminder of, like, what can set the tone for a film straight out the gate. Um, it's quite nice. I like it. It's only two minutes long, so I think it's quite an interesting one to check out. Uh, well, I have an obsession with titles, so I'll have to check that out for sure. And I know you don't like tote bags, but I also have a line of... Sintobi has a line of tote bags that <laughs> that, um, that emphasize and highlight um I like tote bags titles. if they're bought from Sintopia. Then I'm fine. <laughs> okay. that's, I saw that, that, that that's, on, yeah, I'm sticking to the party I line. saw that on go, Twitter the other yeah. day, and I was like, well, don't look at the other <laughs> side of our, our, our website. Um, but yeah, because that's been a little bit of my DIY lockdown project. <laughs> But yeah, no, um, that's that sounds lovely. And Mark, how about you? Sure. So the short documentary I want to talk about this month is called Easter Snap, and it's directed by Ramel Ross, whose really wonderful film uh, Hale County this morning, this evening was out last year, but didn't really play uh, terribly many cinemas. So worth giving this a, a punt now. Um, it follows a group of men in southern Alabama who are hog processing. So they're in a homestead. And they, they've, killed a, they've killed a pig, they've um, hooked it up to a tree, and the process now is to uh, pour it with uh, boil water and then take the, the hog hair off, scrape it off. And so it, it, the documentary is very clean and very precise and uh, frames their actions very carefully and affectionately. But what it also does is there's a moment where the uh, one of the participants, Johnny Blackman, who's the guy who's sort of overseeing the process, he... He collapses and the filmmaker sort of as a declaration of the way in which he's been given trust by the subjects he puts the camera down and goes over to help the guy and that's such a, a clear way of demonstrating that um, you know there is no such thing as documentary objectivity and it's just very clean does this in about 12 minutes uh, that sounds re- that sounds completely up my alley except the the whole premise the of the pig, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still have nightmares from Weekend, you know. Um, but any John Luke Goddard's Weekend. So thank you for those short recommendations. We'll send you. We'll post links to all of them, um, and also the Glasgow Short Film Festival dive in um, whole series. Uh, so that's it for our reviews, and uh, we also want to thank Tim Barrow and Robbie Jones for. Um, being part of this um, month um, through with their interview and um, and definitely check out Riptide. I also just want to mention to take a look at our on on our website for our Cenotopia doc series Love Your Local. Um, it's going to be really fantastic, and we hope that every people will come. It, it's on a pay as you can scale, so you can certainly come in to this. Um, to watch the films um, for free, but they will be only shown within a 24 hour period. And, um, you know, or you can pay, pay what you can or pay what you want, but we'll be having live Q and A's with the filmmakers as well. And we'll be putting that kind of integrating that into our podcast next month. So we're really hoping like, just like we were talking with movie and whatnot, we're ho- we've always hoped with this documentary series to, bring films to Edinburgh audiences, um, you know, that you wouldn't normally get to see necessarily in some of our art house cinemas, some, or if, if, if it was shown maybe once or twice, like one or two nights. So these are films that, you know, you will see at like the documentary film festivals and we try to bring them into, um, you know, into, into a small theater, but now we're taking it online. So we're super excited about it. And it's really to foster discussion just like this podcast is. So, 
make sure to check it out. But also, um, yeah, please write us um, at, at Cenotopia Hub on Instagram or at Cenotopia is our Twitter. And you can also just check out our website and email us there. Uh, we're dying to hear what you think about what we should continue to do um, going forward and how you want to engage with this podcast a little bit more. So um, thanks again for being part of this and um, we'll see you next time.